uh, women are unequal in the profession. They may be, may be there in uh, representation at the beginning, but they're not there as time goes on. And it's because the profession isn't very kind to us when we have children. It's not accommodating, it's not accepting, and women themselves elect out. And I think that's a problem and it needs to be fixed. Welcome to Speak to a Lawyer. I'm your host, Avi Charney, and on this episode, we take a deep dive with Natalie Vukovic. Natalie is a leader in the field of Canadian commercial leasing. She started her own firm in 1995 and has been a huge success ever since. I'm on her website, dv-law.com. She's rated best lawyers, Lexpert, Arcticus, Stars, credentials through the roof. In this discussion, Natalie shares with us her approach to building a successful and happy career in law, how values are important, family, people, and work ethic. I start by asking Natalie, how was it in the 70s and 80s, and what prompted you to study law? Well, those are big questions. What was it like in the 70s? Um, You know, promising times. I was a Northern Ontario girl, grew up in Sault Ste. Marie, uh, an athlete and a good student. Um, I hung around a lot of people who played basketball. I played basketball myself. I, I went to Laurentian University. I made the junior national team. I played varsity. And then uh, the, sum, the summer after my second year of my math degree at Laurentian University, I was hanging around at the YMCA playing with a bunch of guys. And a couple of them were talking about what to do after the undergraduate degree, and one in particular said, you think you're so smart, why don't you write the LSAT? And I said, sure, I'll write the LSAT. What's the LSAT? <laughs> so I wrote the LSAT, and I um, scored quite well on it, and I had terrible undergraduate marks, but I had a good score. So back in those days when you wrote the LSAT, you also indicated which schools you wanted your scores to be sent to. So on a lark, I chose Dalhousie because I knew it had a good basketball program. I chose uh, UBC because it was the other side of the country. I chose Texas, Hawaii. I was trying to do four corners of the earth. (laughs) And then I chose Osgoode, just in case it kind of got serious and maybe I should try to stay in Ontario or something. But I knew nothing about law and I knew nothing about being a lawyer. And no one in my family had been a lawyer. Really, I was just um, basically responding to a challenge from some guys. So uh, in the end, I received some offers of admission to Dow. I had taken a summer job uh, in Toronto. I was 21 years old, and I was making $9,500 a year in my little accounting job at the Banque Nationale de Paris, down at the corner of um, York and King. And so I got this offer. All I can remember is that every day I finished my job by 1.30 and I would ask for more work to do and they would tell me to go file stuff. So I was submitting the um, apartment of the head coach of the University of Toronto women's basketball team because she was a friend of mine. And I was living at her place and working downtown and I felt like Mary Tyler Moore. I was not making any money, but, you know, I had color-coordinated clothing. I was very impressed with myself. And then I got this job, this offer to go to Dalhousie, and my parents had always said that as long as I was in school, they would financially support me, but as soon as I wasn't in school, I'd be on my own. 
So I was on my own for all of about a month at that point, <laughs> realizing how hard it was to rub nickels together. And um, so I thought, hmm, maybe I should do this law school thing. And um, I told my parents that I'd been offered a spot, and they were delighted. But I didn't really want to go that far away, so I walked to, or I took the subway up to the um, York University campus, and then I walked the eight million miles from the subway station into the law faculty's offices, and nothing was electronic back then. So I asked if they could tell me the status of my application because I had an offer from Dow, and this was July, and I knew I was late, but maybe there'd be an offer coming from Osgood off a wait list. I'd heard there was such a thing. So the people at Osgood said, who are you? And let's take a look. And then they went over to the wait list and they said, oh, there you are. You're number two on the wait list. And I said, oh, that's wonderful. When do you think I'll hear if I've been accepted? And they said, well, we don't know. We don't know if anyone's going to turn us down. I mean, um, we're a very good school. Why are you asking? Well, I've got this offer from Dalhousie. Oh, that's a very good school. Why don't you go to Dalhousie? And I said, well, because, you know, it's far and I would really like to be in Toronto and I'm from Ontario and they said, um, well, I can't promise you anything. And back in those days, mail was very prompt. So I uh, was you know, sort of licking my wounds and wondering how long I would wait and what were the chances. And I had something like 10 days to accept my offer. So I was winding down with something like four days to go. And I received a letter in the mail saying I'd been rejected by Osgood. <laughs> so my decision was made for me and I went to Dell. <laughs> that's, that's unfortunate, but I guess it all works out, eh? Oh, it worked out great, and I played basketball for Dal as well, and um, I really enjoyed the East Coast. Um, it was a very good experience, and I was lucky really to get accepted because my undergraduate marks were so abysmal. Mm -hmm. So it was good. I got in, I did the degree, and then, of course, I made my way back to Ontario as soon as I could. Right. Uh, I'll pause. I, I, doing my research a little bit, I read about your, um, you know, you, you noted how influential your parents were, and even now you commented about how supportive they were, uh, I guess, both financially and otherwise, of your decision to go to law school and uh, ultimately, you know, grow as a person. Maybe you can comment a bit about their influence, uh, the importance of, you uh, you know, supportive parents. Well, you know, 250% for sure. Um, my parents were immigrants from Yugoslavia. They came to Canada in 1956 and 57. Um, my father came first. He got a job in the mines and now in Kirkland Lake. Uh, my eldest sister had been born back in what is now Slovenia, Lidiana. So she was two when she and my mother joined my father a little while later. Um, they joined my father and right away my second sister was born in 1958 and then uh, my parents moved to Elliott Lake and um, I was born in 59. So three girls. Um, my parents moved to Sault Ste. Marie to run a motel that had five mortgages on it. They bought it. They paid off all the mortgages. They built their business and um, my father didn't have any sons, so he treated it as his girlfriend sons. And we were very um, pushed and encouraged to excel in everything. And uh, we were, you know, going to fail if we didn't become prime minister. Basically, children of immigrants, you had right. everything in front of you was supposed to be an opportunity. Of course, you interpret it as pressure to succeed. And, you know, we were driven. Yeah. So my parents were, you know, entirely about their kids. They did everything they could to um, help us on our way. Everything from 
buying first cars, to helping with down payments, you know, mm-hmm. paying for education, um, and they lived for their kids. Right. Amazing. And, and you can't understate the importance of supportive parents. Absolutely. And it's interesting because um, my husband is also a children of immigrants. And so the two of us say that, you know, that's just in our DNA. And that's how we're raising our kids. Actually, ours are already all grown. But that is, you know, the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. Mm-hmm. So that is, I think, a fundamental building block. And um, it's really important to your ability to, um, I guess, stand on your own two feet, but also feel that you should. Right. 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 Yeah. The idea that you would somehow live at home and be coddled and, you know, no, not at all. You'd for sure be supported and encouraged, but there was no coddling mm-hmm. on the agenda. Yeah. So um, before we get into your career and how you built it and, and your first job in law, I just want to pause a second at the law school moment and, and ask, uh, you know, these days uh, feminism and equality is important. Back then, was there any sort of, um, you know, standing out by being a female? I've, I've read Ruth Bader Ginsburg's uh, comments about how she being one of the few women at Harvard and also a mother, the burden of responsibility. Did you feel anything or was there a sense of equality back then? I was oblivious to it. Um, my class had 50% females. We uh, thought that we'd arrived. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until much later I discovered that we actually hadn't. So at law school, there was no sense that men were superior to women. Uh, our um, smartest student, the valedictorian, was a female. Uh, many of the shining lights in the, the classroom were female. The professors were, I think, half female or at least uh, close to half female. It was just absolutely not a factor. Uh-huh. And I was an athlete, so I was, you know, um, in the gym and being ferocious in my own way. And it really never dawned on me that there was something ahead mm-hmm. that would amount to an impediment. And... Um, I would also say that because I grew up in the 70s and we had a lot of women's lib stuff going on and my eldest sister was quite the um, uh, staunch uh, political person with long views, with hard views, uh, strong views, and didn't let anyone else get a word in edgewise. She was really sharp and you know brighter than all of us by far. So there was this sense that um, we were supposed to be prime minister. We were supposed to take our rightful place. And... You know, my, my favorite one is that uh, cigarette ad. You've come a long way, baby. You've got your own cigarette now. Mm-hmm. You know, we actually thought that uh, we owned the planet. So I think that um, was probably why I thought nothing huh. of the um, feminist agenda, so to speak. I considered myself to be a feminist as a given. Every woman was a feminist. How would you not be? Right. And it wasn't until later that I thought, oh, maybe it wasn't a good thing to be so overt about that. Uh-huh. Uh, amazing, amazing how, you know, again, the family influence and, you know, you just have a strong belief and plow forward. Oblivion is a blessing in that sense. Uh, I'm curious. Well, I also want to say that my mother and father were entrepreneurs. I, I should have mentioned that not only did my father work in the mines and then eventually at the Algoma Steel Plant in Sault Ste. Marie, but my mother was also university educated and uh, when they came to Sault Ste. Marie and they bought this motel with five mortgages on it, she became front and center of that business. And then later on, when they sold the motel, she bought a ladies' clothing store. She was front and center of that business. So we had a very strong role model in her around, you know, women being capable and effective and 
not sort of uh, pandering to a man. My mother used to always say, you have to stand on your own two feet. Never rely on a man. <laughs> Never rely on a man. Well, I always disappoint you. That's what she Great advice. Wrong. Sounds like you have a very <laughs> talented and successful family. Nice to be around. Um, let's let's get back to you for a minute. And, and now that you know, you've taken us through the background, and after that, what was your first job in law? So my first job was at First Choice Haircutters as an in-house lawyer, yeah. which was very interesting. It was 1985. And um, I mentioned that I came back to Toronto after law school. I articled at Campbell Godfrey Lutis, which is now Baskins. I had uh, the usual rotations, property, and um, tort, or other civil uh, litigation and commercial corporate. So I did those rotations, and I wasn't very good at uh, anything but real estate. And then I got this, um, I went to Bard Mission Course, which was a whole year at the time, and I was um, assistant coaching at the University of Toronto women's basketball team with that friend of mine. So I was the assistant coach there from 83-84 to 84-85, and then many of the women who I was um, assistant coaching, who were my contemporaries, said they wanted to start a senior women's team. So I was basically training and playing basketball all the time, barely doing any law, and then I got this job offer from First Choice Haircutters. They were looking for somebody with zero to two years of experience, or one to two years of experience. I had zero. So um, I had a telephone interview with them <clears throat> from my apartment at Avenue Davenport. They were located way out in Mississauga, and I did well in the telephone interview, so they summoned me out to their offices for an in-person interview, and that was very interesting. They were um, three guys who had started a business, uh, all from Chatham, Ontario. And one was an engineer, and the other one was an accountant, and then the third one was the hairdresser. So they decided to develop this chain of haircutting stores, and they had leased a whole bunch of locations on the basis of offers to lease. They had not finalized too many leases because back then landlords let you take possession without a signed lease. And um, they needed a bunch of leases to be finalized because they were behind on that task. And so I didn't know anything about any of that. But in my articling days, I had enjoyed my time with the property slash real estate lawyers. And so I went back to them and asked if... Um, they thought it would be a good idea for me to take this job. I had a mentor who was a very nice man there. And he said, yeah, sure, let me hand you all of my 10 articles that I have on commercial leasing. You can read them, and that'll be all you'll need to manage the job. <laughs> so I took those 10 articles, and I took the job. And it turned out that the engineer was extremely organized, methodical, experienced, thoughtful. And he had two brokers working with him to do site selection and deal-making, and so those guys taught me everything, and uh, I was there for two years, and I had to represent a tenant who was a franchisor opposite many, many landlords across the country. Um, We had every different form of landlord lease to review. Many of the offers to lease had been done on the tenant's form of offer because they had created one of their own. And so I was mapping the same clauses over into a bunch of different landlord forms of leases, making sure that they'd been picked up and um, respected, and then negotiating all of the other terms. And I did that on a whole bunch of different forms, opposite a whole bunch of different landlords and their lawyers. So I really learned the field uh, from the tenant's perspective. 
and uh, it soon became apparent that the franchisees needed to understand how they were being supported by the franchisor and that they could use some guidance. And so I created these manuals for the franchisees to use to potentially negotiate some of their own deals and to deal with renewals so that they would understand how to exercise an option to renew and what our role would be in that regard and what the rents would turn out to and how the amending agreements would be signed. And so I, I just got into it from the tenant perspective. And um, uh, it was really, really instructive. Anything I didn't know how to do or I didn't understand or I couldn't learn from Jim, the engineer, or the real estate brokers, I would read the Harvey Haber books on shopping centers. And those are not actually written by Harvey. They're compiled by Harvey. They're all articles written by many other lawyers. And, you know, the last few editions I've contributed. But back then, I would just call the author of any article who was dealing with the topic that I was struggling with for instance, priorities or um, non-disturbance. And I would call and say, you wrote this article. I don't understand it. Here's my problem. Could you help me? And they all helped. Everybody was very willing to explain anything to me that I was asking, and then they'd send me on my way. Occasionally, they were outside counsel who would take the opportunity to pitch me for work, and I would politely say, I'm sorry, they're paying me $20,000 a year, so I don't have to spend anything on you. <laughs> So I'll just learn from you. Thank you. Goodbye. <laughs> right. So that that's actually unbelievable how you just uh, started specializing in a certain practice area, commercial leasing, and you just had to practically figure it out on your own. Not to say that you didn't have guidance and resources, but you know, ultimately when you're in the thick of things and you have to make decisions in the moment, it's it's still up to you, and you can't call upon people, you know, right then and there. Um, I'll, I'll start start with a, a bit of a question, or maybe springboard into um, the advice maybe you would give uh, a first year lawyer or an ambitious lawyer fresh out of law school. Um, you know, even if they want to get into, let's say, commercial leasing or any other area, what kind of advice would you give him, generally speaking? And then uh, a follow up question is, do you think it's it's good to specialize like you did, or you know, is there is there value in being somewhat of a generalist? I think it's hard to be a generalist nowadays. I would say that there are some practice areas that might be conducive to that. So, for instance, uh, corporate commercial work, maybe civil litigation, uh, because you do need to stretch to be able to fill your plate. But if you can specialize and if you like something, then it's good to be um, competent and knowledgeable and feel that you know your field. Your first question was as to how, to, what would I recommend to a young person? As between specializing and not, I would recommend specializing, I think, if you've chosen a field that you can roll your sleeves up in and, and make a living out of. I wouldn't choose to specialize in something that's esoteric or um, uh, hard to get clients in. And, you know, I've also learned the hard way that it's easier to get landlord clients than it is to get tenant clients uh, because landlords tend to have uh, more transactions on the go and um, deeper pockets and an understanding that it's important to protect the enterprise and to invest in good services. Whereas just as we had the brokers and the engineer doing the documents till I came along, there are many um, smaller players out there. And so in our case, tenants, many of them would rather figure it out themselves 
get some person who's good at sentence structure and concepts and uh, call them a paralegal and let them run the show. And that's fine. They'll probably do a decent job because, you know, it's not hard to learn by the school of hard knocks. Uh, it's just that you, um, I think if you're a lawyer and you're trying to get to be a good lawyer and not just some person who can handle transactions or tasks in an effective way, but if you actually want to be a good lawyer where you know the law and you understand it and apply it and can be sophisticated in your thinking, then I, I think it just helps to immerse yourself in one field. Right. Um, so, so, so even within real estate, like uh, one one of the things I do is real estate transactions, mostly residential. And you know, if you call yourself a real estate lawyer, which I'm sure to an extent both of us do, they're they're still completely different practice areas. So, you know, if someone came to me for a commercial lease, I'll refer them to you because there's still a, a certain area of specialty and and um, you know expertise in what you do. So. Um, you know, how did you narrow it down? Obviously, from your experience at the your first in-house job, but beyond that, it's still a very form of specialization, and uh, it sounds like it's it's you know it's advantageous. Well, yes, and I would say my first job was in-house as a tenant lawyer, but my second job was in-house as a landlord lawyer, where I went to a landlord company that was the joint shopping center portfolios of Trizec and Bramalee, and they called that company Tri-Lee. And they owned Yorkdale and Scarborough Town Center and um, mm-hmm. Bramalee City Center and you know, stuff out in Calgary and all over the country. And so I then learned about standard lease forms and what landlords are trying to accomplish. And in both the first and second jobs, what I learned that's really important is you have to be valuable to the user. So your client is the user of the product that you create, and you have to help them with something that they need that doesn't bore them to tears or go on and on. It's got to be useful. So uh, we were you know, in the thick of how does this get interpreted when someone refuses to pay a sum? What are the words that can be used to support the claim that either party is making and what are the mechanisms of enforcement? What can you do to right the ship when something is going off the rails? And, and I think being in-house uh, was really instrumental in my development and having both sides of the coin, the tenant side, the landlord side, I got to see that business largely operates without law. Right. <laughs> it just operates. Yeah. And, you know, law is kind of the bumper guards and you're there to um, – Make sure that people don't go off the bumper guards, but you're also not critical. What's what's critical is revenue right. um, and you know other things. But uh, so I would say that if you're trying to figure out where to start your career or how to develop as a lawyer, focus on being uh, competent in a particular field that you choose, but also useful. And you can't just um, know your subject matter. You have to know how to apply it. Mm-hmm. So to me, because the law is so dense and uh, challenging, it's a bit risky to be a generalist. Yeah. I would rather, given my nature, I'd rather know a lot about one thing, from the you know, top to the bottom, and every possible spin-off of it, that would make me feel more confident in the advice I give right. and in the services I provide. Right.
I, I hear that. That's that's if you can, you know, make a, a living and build a, a niche. That's that sounds like the way to go. Um, right. And, and actually, after that second job, I then joined a large law firm that had thirteen lawyers doing nothing but leasing. Oh wow. So, yeah. And in my law firm that we've now got going, we have um, well over ten of us who focus on uh, nothing but leasing. So it's possible, you know, you just have to find that lane that you can get into and then work it. Right. So how long were you at that firm for before you decided to go on your own? And do you want to talk about what precipitated that? Yeah. So that was um, so from 85 to 87. I was at First Choice Haircutters, 87 to 89. I was at Trilee Centers and then 89 to 94. I was at Goodman and Carr. And so in the time that I was 87 to 89 at Trilee, I had negotiated opposite some lawyers at Goodman and Carr, and similarly when I had been at First Choice Haircutters. So I knew that they were, um, they had a presence in commercial leasing. I didn't know very much, but um, I did some deals opposite them, and then I heard that they were looking for someone, and so I had not been hired back as an articling student at Campbell Godfrey Lutis, and I was convinced that downtown Toronto, King and Bay lawyers were highfalutin, better than me, and I didn't fit. <laughs> so there was no chance that I was going to make it at King and Bay. But these guys were looking for a lawyer, and so I was talking to one of them, and they said, well, why don't you come in for an interview? And I said, okay, sure. And in the meantime, I called one of my friends who had been hired back at Campbell Godfrey, and I said, oh, my God, I've got a job interview. You can believe it. I'm down at King and Dave. What should I say? What do I need to know? What's going on? And she said, don't accept a contract position. I said, I don't know what you mean by that. She said, don't take a contract position. Large law firms will always give people a contract because they just want to see if they can use you. And if they want to let go of you, then they don't have any obligation to you. So it's easier for them, but it's riskier for you. So insist if they need you that they hire you on a full-time basis. And I said, well, what's the difference? It's still a full-time job. She said, no, no, no. They aren't going to fire you as readily when they've given you a full-time job. Right. And they'll try and figure out how to redeploy you if a particular practice area um, thins out or for any reason they need to shuffle the deck. So ask for a full-time job. And I said, okay, but I'm nobody and I don't think I could possibly ask for that. And she said, just ask. So I went to the first interview. It went well. And I said, you know, I, I would rather have a full-time position than a contract position. And they said, okay, well, we'll see what we can do about that. And then I got an offer. I didn't even have a second interview. I got an offer. Wow. So I uh, landed there. I was there from 89 to 94, and they represented landlords and tenants. So it was great work. I was um, on both sides. And I didn't have any clients. I didn't know the first thing about business development. I just knew how to do stuff, and I was prepared to work hard. I was single, and I just um, really uh, leaned into it, as the expression goes. Right. We had a feminist group there, and I discovered that actually female lawyers were second-class citizens, and I didn't know about that till then. So when I had been in-house at Trilee, the lawyers were half-female. Or more than half female. When I was at First Choice Haircutters, I was the only lawyer. I was female. And so when I got to Goodman and Carr, suddenly there were women agitating for uh, maternity leave and for equal opportunity in terms of the work they were doing and for pay equity. All these things hadn't even crossed my um, horizon. I didn't know that they existed. 
And then I went through my own hashtag Me Too experience, which was really awful. And um, I also got some great work uh, doing um, things with bankruptcy and insolvency, working on the Federal Bankruptcy and Insolvency Commission uh, advisory com- um, group. So I was uh, learning a lot and in a bit of a dragon's den all at once. And I had, um, in 91, been invited to the partnership. In 92, I had my first child. The economy had gone wonky, so they changed my offer of partnership from being a non-equity partner to, sorry, from being an equity partner to a non-equity partner, which just meant I didn't have to put any capital in, and I theoretically had second-class citizen. I was um, alerted to the fact that the only people who had been offered equity partnership of that class who had been suddenly thrown this wrench were the men, and the women were assigned to the or relegated to the non-equity category. I didn't really care. I got to say I was a partner with a capital P, and um, apparently I was going to earn something that was similar to what they were earning. It was guaranteed. I didn't know what any of that meant. Um, my parents were very proud that I was a partner, and then I uh, got married, had my first child, got my 16 weeks of mat leave. Wow, um, that's short. A lot of yeah, there, well, I, that that was a lot back in the day, and that had just been hard won. And there was a maximum two children you were allowed to have. We would joke among the women's group that um, they were paying us to have children, and I didn't really get the joke. I really did not clue into how. Um, we had to fight for any type of fairness, any type of recognition. They they felt that in the 16 weeks that you were away from work, the men who were doing the work were gaining experience that you weren't gaining, and they were therefore more entitled to be partners and more entitled to more pay and better roles because they didn't step off, and it wasn't fair to them to um, pay us while we were off on the leave, or it wasn't fair to them to... Uh, elevate us as partners when our time came because we hadn't been there as long as they had. If you considered that we were going to have two children each because they were paying us to have them, we would then have had a total of 32 weeks away that those men would never have had. And yet those men had to be there and had to work. And uh, they got to be partners because they earned it, whereas we got to be partners uh, without earning it. And all that seemed, you know, very complicated and uh, chewy, and I thought maybe they were right, and I wasn't deserving. Um, so I had my first child in 92 and came back, and then, you know, there was absolutely no work. It was terrible. In 93, the shopping center industry had fallen apart. Then I had my second child in 94. And when I came back to work in June of 94, I had landed my first two clients and uh, the second one, the first one was Tim Hortons, and the second one was Hazleton Lanes. The second one said, we need you to come back here and process these documents because we're having trouble, and uh, we don't seem to be managing with the other team that's around, so can you get back early? So I came back a week earlier. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, um, by the fall, I was still pumping milk. My baby was born in February. I was back at work in June, and it was, I don't know, September. And they had decided that the whole firm needed to be re 
structured. And so they wanted to be less heavy in real estate and more heavy in litigation and bankruptcy insolvency and that type of thing. So they came around asking everybody exactly what their prognosis was for their role in the firm. We each had to present ourselves and defend ourselves. Meanwhile, my partner, Dennis Daou, had been terminated from the partnership, although he was still there subletting space from them. So they came to me and said, who are you and where do you fit in and you know what's your future here? And I said, just a minute, I've got to pop milk and I'll come and talk to you. <laughs> and so I uh, sat down and explained to them that I had now my first two clients ever. I had been practicing for 10 years now. I had two kids now. I was ready to really launch. I knew my stuff and I was actually finally learning the concepts of this development. Um, I also said I had been on the Federal Bankruptcy and Solidity Advisory Committee and I had, you know, gaining a little profile there. I was the co-chair of the ICSC Law Conference. Um, and so that was also gaining a little industry profile. I was making submissions to industry on that front and I felt like I really was poised. And they said, that's nice. 150 hours of billable time next month. Oi. So I was like, what? 150 hours next month or we'll reduce your pay. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. I didn't know how I was going to get 150 hours. There were no 150 hours to be had. It just wasn't that kind of work. But I didn't understand the business model. And I now understand the business model very well. I mean, it makes sense. You need to have revenue. You can't just pay people without revenue. And the firm was looking for revenue. So they were trying to figure out who was going to generate it and what the new future was going to look like. So to their credit, they were trying to get each of us to figure out how we were going to plug into a business that would be viable. Mm-hmm. And instead, I walked around the hall to Dennis. <laughs> I said, well, what are you still doing here? I, apparently, they terminated your partnership. He said, well, yes, I, I was an equity partner. And so they terminated my partnership, and they're trying to get out of their lease for the new building that they're going into. And I'm um, one of the role players there. They thought it would be best if I were on the sideline, so I'm out. But I'm actually just here as a subtenant. And you know what? It's fine. I have, you know, very few expenses and I still have all the same work and I'm generating it and I'm billing it and I'm paying myself and it's perfectly all right. Why do you ask? And I said, well, because they're telling me that I have to bill 150 hours next month and I don't see how I'm going to bill 150 hours this month. There's just no work to be had. But I do have these two clients and, you know, there's a little bit of work, but nowhere near 150. And uh, so I'm thinking that maybe I'll go out on my own because, you know, I have skills now and I have some business development ability and my mom and dad always wanted me to hang up my own shingle. So I think I'll try that. And I don't know. I was trying to figure out how you do it. And he said, well, this is how it's done. I said, would you want to do that with me? Could the two of us go somewhere together? Absolutely. Sure. So we went looking for space. Dennis did a lot of work for Cadillac Fairview. He had been in-house with them for a number of years. So that was his main client. And so we said, maybe we should rent space in a Cadillac Fairview building. That's a good idea. So off we went to the Cadillac Fairview head office at 20 Queen West in Toronto. And they had, I don't know, 1,100 square feet on the sixth floor. And we said, let's take that. And so we decided to start as Dow Vukovic. Wow. And we had a third partner, uh, partner, a guy in the municipal law section at Gubnikar wanted to be a litigator, and he joined us at the beginning. So we took the space, and we started in January 1, 1995. Wow. And we had no way of knowing that the industry was just finally going to come out of the doldrums, and we rode the wave. 
So we just got started when the industry came back to life. That's unbelievable. It sounds like it's been a great success since then uh, with incredible growth. Um, just ab about your experience, and you know, I'm sure a lot of people, I know a lot of lawyers have been laid off since COVID, uh, you know, do you have a suggestion for them, you know, just because you could get laid off if you work at a firm or they can impose these 150 hour conditions on you when you have a, a newborn baby at home, do you suggest that people, you know, try for employment or if they can, are you all for going out on your own? I mean, that's sounds like it's been great success for you with the freedom and, and lifestyle that came along with it. Well, none of us has a crystal ball, and I look back and say, boy, my, we're lucky we started in 1995. We st if we'd started in 1993, I bet we would have bumped along, and our bank would have been upset with us for, you know, no revenue and <laughs> lots of expenses. Right. And so, you know, we got lucky. I would say that anybody in the COVID era who got laid off should be asking themselves, how do they feel about their skills? How do they feel about their taste for risk. I mean, when I said, oh, Dennis and I are going to start this firm, I didn't decide that on my own with Dennis. I went home and I said to hubby, uh, here's a problem. They want me to bill 150 hours next month. That's impossible. They're going to reduce my pay. I don't know what that means. We've got a mortgage here. Um, I sort of think that I've got skills and I sort of think I've got a couple of clients and I don't know where this is all headed, but I mean, I don't need to generate a lot to just keep things going. Look at what Dennis has to say. This is all you need to do. We did some back of the napkin calculations, you know, minus the expense of this, minus the expense of that, minus the expense of rent. Like it's possible that you could end up in the same place. But if we don't end up in the same place, the worst thing that happens is we can't afford the house. We have to go live in an apartment, but we'll still have each other. We'll still have the kids. Mm -hmm. You know, so he said, go for it. I totally get it. I mean, you don't want those people breathing down your neck telling you that you have to go 150 hours. And then there was the whole hashtag me too thing that had never sat well with him and he was annoyed with them. And so he said, let's just get you out of that place and see what happens. Now, I had the support of him and he was a teacher. So we knew that we'd always have, you know, decent um, uh, medical, dental, all of that coverage because of his job. Mm -hmm. And um, I would say that I'm also from Sault Ste. Marie, so if all else failed, we could pull the plug and go back to live in Sault Ste. Marie where real estate would be a lot less expensive. So in the back of my mind, I had safety valves. Right. Um, but I can't say that I could advise anybody right now what to do. First of all, there's so much uncertainty, but I don't believe that anything lasts forever. So if you have confidence in yourself and there are skills that you can bring and you don't mind taking a chance, you know, there's a lot of good opportunity that comes out of ashes mm -hmm. and why not try um, if you do take a job somewhere then I would say take a job in an organization that you research well because you want them to be um, whole people who treat you like a human being you want the check the paycheck to be reliable and you want um, really the work to be something that you can handle it doesn't need to be the best work. It doesn't need to be the most scintillating. I'm a firm believer that you have to put food on the table and you go where the opportunity is. Right. Don't sort of insist on having things your way. It would be great if we all got to the exact scintillating practice area that we had dreamt of. Most of us haven't dreamt of much. We're just trying to make a living and make a go of it. So I wouldn't say that you should hold out for your 
dream job. Right. I, I absolutely agree with, with everything you said, including it's a matter of risk tolerance. And uh, I'll just even emphasize that uh, I think the secret sauce is that self-confidence that you mentioned. If people really believe that they have value to offer, then nothing should stop them. Um, well, I didn't have it at year one or two or four either. You know, I mean, it took me quite a while to feel that I knew my stuff and I could talk about it with confidence and that I knew enough to go to a meeting and recommend a course of action and try to win some business. That doesn't happen that easily. I mean, maybe people are good at bluffing. I wasn't. Right. Well, each each person at their own stage. And when I heard you speak about your in-house experience, uh, you know, that's also in a way just jumping in and taking on a serious role and just a, a sink or swim. That's, that's, right, that's but I didn't know that it was a serious role. I thought it was just a opportunity to get myself a job, and you know, I, I would never have been able to foresee the learning experience that it turned out to be. Right, absolutely. I mean, your your confidence has to be realistic, but uh, it's also required. Um, I'll just mention that my last interview was with uh, Donald Carr. And he was uh, oh no kidding yeah very interesting so uh, nice to hear it from your point of view as a as a partner at the firm, and uh, he mentioned uh, a lot of interesting things but one of which that he was involved in the innovation of the percentage lease, um, so I was wondering if that was during your time at all, um, or if not uh, you know people like leases commercial leases uh, to be stable. Uh, no one wants changes, you know, from a from a business point of view. So the question is, have you seen other innovation at all in in commercial leasing? Uh, he he mentioned the percentage lease, but anything else beyond that? Uh, I'd have to think about that for a minute, but I would have to say that Donald Carr is I'm going to bet about thirty years my senior, mm -hmm. and he had been um, a very established. A real estate practitioner long before I showed up, and I'm sure that he invented a lot of what most of us work with. Um, there have been a lots of adjustments to industry changes. Um, retail, in particular, is very creative. Um, some of the systems and processes have changed a lot, where people go straight to lease, and um, there's generally a, a sophistication in the community that didn't exist a long time ago. And so you have uh, it's sort of an ability to finish each other's sentences if you've been in the field at all. And that tends to lead to a lot of shortcut and a lot of use of standard step downs. There's a, a lot of uh, quick shorthand ways of getting to results. Mm -hmm. And so if you are going to play in this sector, you've got to be nimble and you've got to know the stuff. Right. And I think you, we, in our day, we were learning a lot as we went along. There was a lot of new case law being laid down. There was a lot of stuff like Goodyear and Burnham Thorpe that came along and um, the new bankruptcy legislation that came along and CCAA that was invoked for the first time. There was uh, just generally a development in the law around everything from provisions of the Commercial Tenancies Act and how they interplayed with leases to um, the way people contracted so uh, or transacted. So I, I, it just seems to me that now there's so much more knowledge uh, and you have to stay abreast of it. And 
you need probably a good four to six years to absorb it before you can um, contribute any sort of insight into deal making. Mm -hmm. And that was a very different landscape when Don Carr came along. And I must say, too, that of that whole uh, Goodman and Carr era, Wolf Goodman and Don Carr were exemplary lawyers and gentlemen. They were just really salt of the earth um, and are, I suppose. Yes. And so it's it's a shame that the firm uh, that where it did and that it uh, imploded. Um, that was long before, uh, long after I left, and those guys were long before I joined. Uh, but they were still there when I was there, and they were significant and professor emeritus type players. I couldn't agree more that uh, Donald Carr, based on my interactions and discussions with him, is a real mensch, a good man. So, yes, yeah. yes, yes. Um, I have a, a couple of questions about your practice. Um, is there a use for technology, and what is the use for technology? And in other areas of law, uh, real estate transactions, there's due process, which really helps with the with everything to do with the transaction. And you know, in estates, there's other sort of software that helps with things. Uh, is is there such things in in commercial real estate, or is it you know just heavy contract based? Um, I think that our uh, dirt lawyers have some systems. I'm talking about people who buy self finance. Mm-hmm. They have some systems, but I, I do think most of it is word processing based. Mm-hmm. And uh, there may be some templates that feed each other in the uh, traditional commercial real estate. Work and particularly in uh, work that's mass-produced, lots of volume. I'm thinking about um, condos, which is not commercial, mm-hmm. although it is commercial. But on on my side, there isn't much that we can do except try to get standard templates and standard clauses and have them coded in ways that make sense to the users and accessible. Mm-hmm. In fact, our firm tried to do a document management system that was rolled out by WorldDocs or, you know, to an iManager or any of those systems. And we discovered it doesn't really lend itself mm-hmm. to commercial leasing. It's just a lot of documents that are searchable, but they're not organized in the way that we organize them, that in our case is both client-driven and standard form for ourselves driven. So um, it's really a lot of uh, word processing. And then, unfortunately, if there's a new development of the law, you want to address it with a standard clause, you have to roll that out in a million places. Right. And I think a lot about whether there is some type of uh, system of standard documentation that could be more automated and um, maybe built on a database and not in word processing. Um, and I, you know, have that math degree and I have a, a little bit of a penchant for computers uh, science stuff. And I was one of the original lawyers who typed back when lawyers weren't supposed to type. Um, and I still can't see a path. So I haven't seen others do it either. Uh-huh. There's talk. There's a lot of talk. And people love to talk about um, the blockchain. <laughs> right. I think that's very misguided uh-huh. as it relates to real estate. I mean, I can see that there are jurisdictions in the world that are uh, not yet organized. And so you could start afresh with a blank slate to maybe take some chunk of data and cement it and then let the data interact with the data, which is the premise of blockchain. But I don't see how you would do it 
in the realm of the North American land registry system and the way people transact. Mm-hmm. And I belong to this um, faculty of uh, Georgetown University Law Center's Advanced Commercial Leasing Institute, where we host a by-invitation-only conference once a year in Washington, D.C. Lawyers are invited from all over North America, and it's a bit of a think tank. Uh, We find that nobody has found the sophisticated way of using some type of um, artificial intelligence to do anything that's really meaningful. It, it isn't there yet, and we don't know how anybody would, quote, invent it, because they'd have to presume some sort of desire for uniformity, and there isn't that. Everyone wants to negotiate. Right. Interesting how there could be room for tech, and uh, you just got to find find out could be utilized. Uh, a follow-up question to that is, how do you think COVID has changed things, you know, probably quite dramatically slowed down and everything. And, you know, tail end of that, how could things be improved? What would you like to see going forward? Well, uh, I'm sorry to say, because this isn't what everyone else is saying, we're super busy. (laughs) We haven't slowed down. We've gotten busier through COVID because of the impact on landlords and tenants and businesses generally. And there's a lot of analysis around what to do what's viable, uh, a lot of negotiating, renegotiating, interpreting, analyzing, advising. So um, I think what we don't know is, quote, when the dust settles, if there is such a thing, what the new work will be like. Right now it's the same old work. It's one of the reasons I said, you know, I like specializing in this field is there's a lot of buildings out there. There's a lot of land out there. It gets used. People go in and out of real estate all the time. So that's the action. You just need to be near the action. You need to get to know people who are buying, selling, financing, or in our case, leasing or deleasing, expanding, shrinking. There's documents associated with that. And so I I can't say I have any clue how COVID is going to impact us a year from now. the, to the extent that our practice was reliant on retail for about the first decade of its uh, existence, that's no longer the case. We've done a lot of office and industrial and every other type of um, lease. Mm-hmm. So there's there's a lot of work. Good to hear. Yeah. And and you think things could be improved in one way or another? Um, things could be improved always. Yes, I think because it can be improved. That the question is, what's the priority? And I don't know that anybody knows that. Um, at the moment, it seems survival is the priority. Yeah. So there's just generally an emphasis on what do we do to uh, keep the old format of business alive and well in whatever way until we can figure out what the new format of business looks like. And so, uh, you know, we tend not to be drivers where we react to what the industry seems to be doing and we keep our ear to the ground and we contribute in terms of saying this is what we're hearing that others are doing. 
but we don't lead the way. Right. So, I mean, you, you talk about leading, you, you're leading a firm, you have associates and, and partners um, who work with you. Uh, you know, when something like COVID happens, or just in general, can you talk about the leadership role and, and you know, what it's like managing a firm in general, but also in such, you know, uh, transitionary, transitionary times? Well, there's been a lot of stepping up. So when it all uh, first came to be, we were in our offices wondering if we were going to be told to leave our offices, and many of our people wanted not to come in. So as a group, we said anybody who doesn't want to come in doesn't have to. We understand, and uh, let's you know listen to what the authorities are telling us. It got interesting when the authorities told us that law firms were on the list of essential workplaces. Right. It meant we didn't have to close. So. Then having no outside body telling us when to reopen, we had to think for ourselves as to when to call people back. And so everyone stayed away for quite a long time, but I didn't. I went to the office every day because I found it stabilizing, and there was no one there to contaminate me except for a few other coworkers who also preferred being there. And so we had about five or seven of our 40 people there. Um, for the first month or so, and then gradually people started wanting to come in and put in a day here and there to get caught up. They were working from home as well as they could, but many of them found it aggravating. There were people with health issues who had no choice and wanted to work from home to be safe, and that was fair. And there were people who were just waiting to be told it was okay to come back, and we had to tell them it's really not on us to tell you, except we think it's a good idea if you do get back. So there were constant conversations. We had town hall meetings. We had discussions around what did this mean for the future of our firm? Did we have to do some human calculus and think about layoffs and so on? We quickly decided that that wasn't the way we wanted to proceed. It was more important to us to find a way to manage. And uh, so we kept we sent an early notice out to everyone saying there'll be no layoffs. We're going to make this work somehow by hook or by crook. You know, the partners didn't take draws. We just did everything we could to figure out how we were going to function. And then gradually a bit of a path emerged, and uh, by the middle of May, we were saying, well, we really ought to have everyone come back in. So by the beginning of June, we had people coming in on an every-other-day basis. Some people came in every day. I had never stopped. Um, and there were many people who were breathing a sigh of relief that they were allowed to come back in. It was so interesting. So... We now have, uh, I think, a bit of a status quo where we have, on a given day, about 25 of our 40 people in the office. Everybody's distancing. We've got all the rules about how many people can be in a in the kitchen or in a boardroom, and you know, right. um, we do a lot of disinfecting all day long. It's common touch surfaces. Right. So the leadership there has been uh, collaborative. Uh, my firm is now in its 26th year, and um, there's a next generation ready to run the firm when the elders get out of the way, and we're all gradually exiting. So that next generation has been you know, um, heard as well and expressing their uh, leadership. And we have weekly partners meetings where we had them quarterly before, uh, we talk about uh, what to do and who's doing what and so on. We have section meetings, the leasing section, the litigation section, the real estate section. Everybody meets weekly, yeah. talk about who's doing what, who needs what help. Sounds um, like you're going to... When gonna... CICRA came along, 
you know, when Secret came along, which was that uh, commercial real estate as- uh, rent assistance program from the feds, everybody had to understand how that worked and get familiar very quickly. And our youngest associate lawyer became the expert. Yeah. <laughs> so leadership has come from everyone, but it's been all hands on deck. Everybody really has um, tried to figure out how to be useful, and um, nobody's tried to share responsibility. Right. No, nothing like working with a good team, supportive team. It's like that family we mentioned at the beginning when you have uh, good colleagues. Right. It, it's, you know. right. And it's not like we're all in agreement all the time, but we're all constantly in dialogue. Right. And that's the main thing is, you know, as my youngest son said to me the other day, there's value in conversation just in, its, uh, in and of itself. Right. So constant, constant conversation. Conversation, communication. I'm a big fan, absolutely. Um, I, mm-hmm. I ask, you know, you've been a lawyer for such a long time and uh, now running your own firm for such a long time. And I alluded to at the beginning the amount of, you know, publications that you pump out every year and speaking and, and giving back, if you will. Do you have any sort of key to that longevity? Well, I think you have to show up every day. Yeah. So absolutely every day you don't take a powder. You say, what can I do today? And you look in that mirror and say, if it's going to be, it's up to me, and off I go. So that's that's critical. Uh, from the writing and reading and learning and so on um, perspective, I think it's all, again, just dogged determination. Uh, mostly in my case, I'm motivated by a fear of failure. So I want to not fail and whatever that looks like it means usually trying hard again each day to not fail and that includes reading the law understanding the law writing about the law i do less of that now um because in my sort of emeritus role i guess i'm trying to encourage the next generation to roll up their sleeves and so i tend to edit more than i write uh-huh. and i'm sure that's no fun for them because i have a heck of a red pen right. but uh, i i'd say that uh, i'm always encouraging them to uh, gain insight and share it and to uh, to noodle it out spend time thinking i mean i was telling you about how i had my first child in 92 I remembered that I was supposed to prepare a manual for some uh, how to deal a procedural guide to responding to tenants' requests for granting of security. It was for a landlord client who no longer exists. That portfolio was sold. But anyway, that landlord client expected me to produce that guideline, and I had not done it, not done it, not done it. And my uh, senior partner at uh, Goodman Carr was saying, where is it? Where is it? And I was delinquent. And then I rolled in on Labor Day weekend in my third trimester. And I sat down in my office for 48 hours or whatever it was and finished that damn guideline because it was due. It was past due. And I needed to grapple with all the law and I needed to grapple with all the concepts. I had to make it organized. I had so much I had to pull together, but it didn't matter if it was Labor Day weekend. I had to get it done. Right. So you, you sacrifice a lot as a lawyer in terms of personal time. Yeah. Um, but that's just part of being a professional. I wouldn't say that it's worth it. It's just the responsibility of being a professional, right? You owe your governing body the duty to do your best and so on, and you took that oath, so you live up to it. Yeah. Is there anything uh, you look back on uh, your career and any part of it and you think, wow, that was a really good investment. I'm, I'm happy I made that decision. Anything stand out? Oh, for sure the best decision was to start my own firm. 
there's, I, there's nothing that pales in comparison to that. Nothing, everything else pales in comparison to that. But in terms of a decision to invest in um, maybe something more of a capital asset, uh, our firm started in that small space I mentioned on the sixth floor of 20 Queen West, and we grew to the rest of the floor, but it was not the best layout. And then uh, our lease was coming to an end at the end of our 10 years, and we knew we needed a little more space. And so uh, we relocated to the 30th floor of our building, and it was big to take on that much space. We had a lot more space than we needed, and it was a big layout and, uh, you know, big photocopy room, big filing cabinet system. Everything was grand in my estimation. And it felt like we were placing a bet on ourselves at that point. And um, I think it was a good bet. It was. I think you should present yourself as confident that you believe. If people see that you believe in yourself, they believe in you too. Yes. That's, that's, yeah, you mentioned the risk and the confidence before, and it sounds like you had it when you went on your own and upgraded and you had to fill the space and pay the rent. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's yeah, good. Ultimately, investing in yourself and your future and your firm, uh, you know, pays off in the long run. Um, if you had... Um, I would like to add one, I'd like to add one more thing. Yeah. And that's investing in people. Yes. So, you know, the people at our firm, many of them have been with us for over 20 years. Um, there's only three of us who've been there the whole 25, Dennis, my assistant, and me. And we have uh, always said to ourselves that we're not only in the business of practicing law and in the industry of commercial real estate, but we're in the business of providing jobs. And so we have to take that responsibility very seriously. We have to make sure that the people we select are you know, good players who want to be on the team, and we also want to make sure that we um, reflect to them how valuable they are to us. Yeah. So we, we do whatever we can to let them know that they're valued and to encourage their development and to support them in whatever ways are necessary. And that is an investment that is huge because if you ever have to deal with the cost of turnover, you know it's extremely expensive in ways that can never be quantified. Right. So investing in people would be, and you know, and, and on that note, when we noticed that we were all getting older and we needed to not face a future in which one day someone would turn out the lights, we said, let's go recruit the next generation of young leaders to replace us. And so we've done that, and that's been an exceptional um transition for us to bring along a generation of leaders who are going to continue the firm after the elders are gone. Right. And, you know, they may not keep it under the same name, but I know that there won't be anybody turning out the lights and, you know, signing the last severance pay package. There will be jobs and there will be offices. <laughs> I don't know what our post-COVID our footprint is going to look like, but it's going to exist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's very uh, mature to be able to think of the next generation and uh, you know succession ultimately. Um, a, a question: When you're hiring somebody, uh, especially for these roles of perhaps taking over for the next generation, if you take out the experience aspect, because obviously you want to hire someone with commercial real estate experience. If you're let's say talking about a, a first year grad or whatever it is, what what kind of traits? are you looking for or perhaps even a, 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 an associate but without that commercial leasing experience all else being equal are there any traits that you look for that would really help you make a decision one way or the other well we like them to be affable and um, 
people who write well, speak well. Uh, we like them to have um, some sort of experience outwardly where they are uh, social, not necessarily gregarious and the most, you know, um, expansive personality, but it doesn't necessarily work in our line of um, of effort to be excessively studious and quiet. I think that's maybe some areas of law are given to that type of personality. Our personality needs to be someone who is uh, inclined to go out and be sociable and also inclined to read and, um, you know, bone up on a subject. Uh So we're looking for people who aren't entirely bookish, Uh but also uh, who aren't um, sales force. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then, you know, because of the commercial leasing side in particular being so detailed, so many little details to capture, where it's, that's the hardest thing to figure out on a few interviews is whether somebody has a penchant for detail. Uh-huh. That's so interesting that each area law comes with a perhaps certain personality trait that is most fitting. Um, I mean, there's there's obviously some flexibility and overlap, but uh, you you could make such a generalization. I I agree, and I, I know what you mean. Um, I'll end with one more question because I thank you for your time up until now. It's it's been a good chat, and as a last message, so to speak, if you had a a billboard or a publication uh, that you could, um, you know, millions of people are going to see in a public place, and you can put a, a sentence or a quote or or anything like that on it. Is there anything that comes to mind that you'd like to share with the world? Oh my goodness, that is a challenging question. Um, I think that. I would have to say play to win. That would be my motto. Not at all costs, but I would say that the um, message that I would put out there, especially for women, is it's uh, not play not to lose and not just get by, but really put yourself out there and go for it. So my, my billboard, I guess, if that's what you're looking for, would say play to win. Thank you for that, Natalie. Insightful answer. Thanks. Is there any last words you want to share with us before we let you go? Well, I would like to address some of the modern um, issues that are swirling around. The Black Lives Matter movement is important to me, and um, you know the equality of women in the profession. It, uh, women are unequal in the profession. They may be, may be there in uh, representation at the beginning, but they're not there as time goes on. And it's because the profession isn't very kind to us when we have children. It's not accommodating, it's not accepting, and women themselves elect out. And I think that's a problem and it needs to be fixed. I uh, would say that I don't have any solutions to offer except that I think all of us should know it's a collective responsibility to make the profession more welcoming to women. And if they're going to have children, it's only because the men can't. <laughs> Somebody's got to have them, and we should have them in our profession too. So uh, that's something that's on my mind a lot, and I think that's um, sort of ahead of the other thing that's on my mind that's more current around the topic of diversity and inclusion, and that is that our profession has not um, lived up to its um, billing in terms of you know liberal thought and 
um, being egalitarian in the sense that we have not uh, reduced the barriers to entry to our profession for many people who are of color and who have come from backgrounds that don't give them the leg up. And we need to give them the leg up. So I would say it's a it's something that's constantly on my mind. Our firm has done something in terms of establishing a scholarship at Ryerson University for the law school that's just starting there. Um, and we're going to try to create better access with an annual award to a student who identifies as racialized. And we're hoping that other law firms are going to do similar things and that collectively the legal profession uh, will recognize that it has um, systemically prevented women and people of color from succeeding and uh, we need to fix that yeah i i agree and uh you know my my background being south african i have family that sat in jail uh, fighting apartheid and uh, i'm also a, a foreign licensed lawyer nca candidate so i know what all those nca students are going through you mentioned the the rice and law program those people also have a, a bit of an uphill battle and I'm all for equality and equal opportunity because a lot of times people with diverse backgrounds have even a lot more to offer than uh, a locally groomed lawyer. So, um, you know, I look forward to, you know, working, uh, you know, for that as well to, to help in our profession. I think our profession should reflect our society and, uh, you know, we, we are making a big mistake to repeat the patterns we have to break the patterns yes i couldn't agree more well natalie thank you very much for your time i appreciate it i think our discussion has been insightful and i look forward to continuing it with you you're very welcome i really appreciated the time together and uh, i hope it's beneficial to whoever your Absolute. audience is and to you Thank you for listening to the end. If you need to reach me, I'm at charneylegal.ca, C-H-A-R-N-E-Y, legal.ca, the home of this podcast. I'm Avi Charney. I look forward to seeing you on the next one. Bye for now.